Welcome to this podcast of Anna Garnock interviewing Jane Goodall, whose book, Politics of the Common Good, presents a historical perspective on the universal basic income. This outlines a way to restore a new economy for the common good, with its core principles of community, work and resources. You'll get a clear picture that it's not about welfare, but basic land rights, that every creature born on the earth has the right to have substance from it, in return for responsibility to it. Jane teases out what the basic income is, where arguments about the UBI go wrong and the need for a trial in a small community in order to restore an economy for the common good. Hello, hello, and welcome to the New Economy Network Australia, NINA, podcast. My name is Anna Garnock, and I'm grateful to interview folks involved with NINA, Australia's largest multi-sectoral network of innovators, changemakers, and advocates working for an ecologically sound and socially just economy. Today, we are interviewing Jane Goodall. Jane is an emeritus professor at the Writing and Society Research Centre, Western Sydney University. Her research is concerned with the dynamics of cultural crisis, historically and in the present. She's the author of a wide range of books and essays on literary and cultural history, and her most recent book is The Politics of the Common Good. She writes regularly for Inside Story and the Canberra Times. I'm really excited to meet with you today and, and have big chats. Thanks, Jane, for joining us. Thanks, Anna. It's lovely to talk. <laughs> Great. Well, I'm going to dive straight in because you've got a very rich and exciting past and present, I think. So can you please start by telling us a bit about your current work and, and, and your role with the Western Sydney University? Okay. Um, I should start by saying I'm speaking from Ngunnawal land in a beautiful spring morning in Canberra and the blossoms are out. It's a conventional now and an important one to, to acknowledge the territory you're speaking from. But the approach I take to basic income, which we're here to talk about, connects very centrally to traditions of land rights. So we'll go to that later, but I just kind of like to make that point. I have the luxury of working from home because how did I think of it? I don't like talking of um, retirement, but a while back I decided I could afford to live without my salary, which was a luxury. And so I'm no longer institutionally owned. I'm a Nina. Right. <laughs> And it leaves me free to do what's always seems to be my natural way of doing things, which is to move sideways like a crab. And we live in a, an academic world that insists you must move forward along a tunnel. And I didn't get on well with that. People want to know, what's your discipline? You know, how do you badge yourself? And while I'm a great believer in discipline, I really believe in the accumulation of knowledge and specialised understanding. And I believe in tackling the difficulties and the craft of a discipline, whether in the academic world or in other ways. I also do sewing as a craft. Um, I think that it's not natural to 
work in these silos which have grown up really in the last few hundred years. Are you a historian or a chemist? Now, you ask a vice chancellor that, they will not want to mess about with that boundary. If you ask that question to Leonardo da Vinci, he wouldn't even know what you were talking about because it would never have occurred to him to separate those things. So this is not about this distinction of disciplines. It's not at all about how the human mind works. It's about how a particular kind of economy has chosen to organise knowledge and to fund knowledge. And if you're talking to a vice chancellor, funding comes first, which is, in a nutshell, why I wanted to leave salaried employment. Uh, because they force you to operate in a certain kind of economy with certain kinds of really what I would call salesmanship at the heart of it, and I didn't like it. That said, you asked about Western Sydney. I think it's a marvellous university for all the difficulties of its context in this economy. I joined it in 1995, which was just when the Howard Cuts came in and this doubling down happened of what I would now call a, a neoliberal economic model. We were supposed to call students clients. At Western Sydney, most of our students were first generation university students. They're extremely diverse in language, background, experience. The university was poorly funded. It had no real reputation. And it served those students very diligently. Most of my colleagues were really genuinely committed to education in the true sense. I had wonderful colleagues. I still value them as, you know, the smartest people I've ever met. And none of them are famous <laughs> for being smart. They're just smart, really intelligent people. Some of them are still there, though not many, because the university's done its best to get rid of people who are really smart in favour of people who bring in a lot of money. Not always map on the same thing. But anyway, writing and society does very good and important work and has good people. So that's my little sermon about that one. <laughs> thank you, Jane. And thank you for that beautiful acknowledgement of country at the beginning there to to frame everything you just shared. Um, it sounds like you've had quite a personal journey with it and, and figuring out your own values within this system. So I want to hear about your education and your experience into what it is that you do do, um, which is obviously not a nice clear cut discipline because your mind is big, bright and wonderful and able to see intersections of things and creative elements and factual elements and historical political elements and you bring it all together through writing. What, what is that? What does that look like? What kind of things have you done and want to continue doing? You know, I find it very difficult, that question of what pulls this together because, uh, like I say, I move sideways like a crab. Um, and every time I have to write a little bio statement, 
I put it off. I think, oh, God, no, not again. And I genuinely can't think of the best way to put it. Because I'm not salaried, I don't have to do that now. I don't have to write out, you know, these advertising statements about me and my world-class research or whatever rubbish they make you say. Um, I do follow my instincts. <clears throat> and I love to learn things about things that are important because I work freelance for pocket money, really. I can do that. I tend to choose my own topics. I was very fortunate to fall in the way of an independent publication called Writing and Society, edited by Peter Brown, who's, uh, he had a history working as a producer at the ABC and in numerous other kind of publication and journalism roles. But he'd always wanted to do an independent like Inside Story is the name and the nature of the enterprise. He wanted to go into background and to draw on the people he'd met in journalism who also wanted to do that. I was so fortunate to be connected with them. It happened via a very close friend of mine, Sylvia Lawson, who died a few years ago, who was a very important Australian historian, cultural critic, particularly a film critic. So she got me connected to them. And um, about 10 years ago, Peter Brown, who'd been publishing bits I was writing from Toowoomba, I'd been writing about the floods, which were very, very catastrophic in that part of the world in 2011. And I'd been writing about South Queensland politics, which is crazily interesting and, and weird. But he suggested I become their television critic. I thought, why? <laughs> anyway, I said, sure. <laughs> and it was perfect because television also goes everywhere. Um, I could choose to review a documentary, an episode of Q&A, which I very rarely would choose to do. Lots of TV drama and I have background teaching drama and TV drama has been fantastic in the last 10 years, really amazing diversity and quality. And I love the acting in TV drama. So it gives me a chance to talk about acting. In fact, the piece I've got in the current Inside Story is about Mystery Road origin, which I'm sure all your listeners love. But I'd reviewed the previous two TV series of Mystery Road. And because I'm fascinated by acting, I thought, Who's the casting director? Because, you know, whether something's good or not, the casting director has a lot to do with that. They make interesting choices. I thought, whoever is the casting director of this is an absolute genius. So I looked her up and I wrote, you know, an acknowledgement that this was exceptional. And for the third one, I thought, I wonder if she'd talk to me. So I found her website, I rang the phone number, and she answered it herself. And she said, sure. Anusha Zarkesh is her name. She's an amazing person. I mean, truly an amazing, self-made person. Um, she started off as an anthropologist and then was working part-time in theatre and then was interested in the management side of theatre and became a casting director. But anyway, 
cut that story a little bit short. I got to talk to her. She insisted I talk to this wonderful producer called Greer Simpkin and then to Dylan River, the director. So we talked about what makes somebody into a television actor. That's the kind of luxury I have because I'm not really paid. <laughs> Phenomenal. Wow, I love that you reached out to her and sparked this conversation. And that sounds like a really interesting gig, looking and reviewing all things television. So well, you learn. I just love learning things. I, I always think of myself as doing homework. <laughs> you know, I never liked doing homework as a kid, but choose your own homework. That's great. Yeah. Well, it's what you're interested in and our, and our brains aren't necessarily siloed with our interests. We can, we can have a broad range of very wacko divergent interests, I think. So it's exciting to explore that and not have tunnel vision, um, but, but step sideways as you do. So jumping into our economic system and you flagged it earlier. So we do live in this, this, you termed it our neoliberal economic system. Can you outline in your view what you think is wrong with it? What's problematic about it? And why do we need to build a new economy? Oh, that's a neat little question. Just give me 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) No biggie. (laughs) Here, I'll do a little plug. I wrote a book about it. The politics of the common good. Right, perfect. Um, Because I was interested in that question. Um, And what actually sparked it? I was reviewing a Q&A. It is the most frustrating program, that. And it was during the election. I forget the year now, but it was when Bill Shorten was um, the Labour candidate and Barnaby Joyce's deputy PM was on Q&A along with Tony Windsor. And I'm quite a Tony Windsor fan. Um, I think he really does or did serve that electorate in an absolutely genuine way, as so many independents do. Uh, He's such a genuinely intelligent, principled person, very articulate. And Barnaby Joyce seemed to me the opposite of those things. Anyway, um, it was a curious program. There was a rumour that they'd had a fight in the car park on the way in. They actually punched each other. I don't know if it was true. (laughs) um, They were talking about the New England electorate. And I know those towns very well. I've got friends up there, Armadale, Tamworth. And it was some broadcast from this beautiful um, town hall in Tamworth that was built shortly after the Depression years, the 20s. Um, And every question was about serious need for resources that weren't available. So there were questions about the availability of essential medical services, for which people had to drive to the nearest capital city, mental health services with teenagers at risk, 
there was somebody who had a farm not far out of Tamworth and couldn't get any internet access. How can you run a farm without, that's a business, you know. Um, and every so often, you know, they, they'd answer these questions and Barnaby Joyce would claim they'd done this, done that, and every question. But, you know, the economy, we had to take care of the economy. Oh, got to be careful about not wrecking the economy. And at some point, something split in my head and I actually found myself standing up. I didn't actually throw anything on the television, but I shouted back at him, why are we so poor as a people? Why are we so poor? You're the deputy PM of a government that's been in power for years and you unashamedly, absolutely without shame or embarrassment, tell your constituents who stupidly voted him back in that you can't afford essential services. Well, why not? We're not a poor country. What have you done with this famous economy you're talking about? Who do you think it serves? Is it some God we're all supposed to pay into? Isn't it supposed to serve us back again? So, you know, what happened to the common good and what happened to the very principle that an economy is supposed to serve the common good? And as soon as you ask that question, you get into ideology because the first answer to it is that the corporate sector and certain people in the corporate sector who really like power and wanted lots of it got very interested in an ideology that called itself neoliberalism. It is a word, it is a thing, it does have a highly specific history, going back to the end of the Second World War in the middle of the 20th century. They were terrified of communism. They were so terrified of communism, they thought they had to do everything that was the opposite of it. But whatever you've got against communism, and certainly it's not been implemented in a happy way in most of the examples we know of. Communism began as an attempt to serve the common good. And if you do the opposite of everything you think is communism, you're going to do the opposite of everything that is for the common good. And that's what's happened. Um, so our whole machinery of economic life is devoted to sending money upwards. We know that, we know about the 1%, we've said it till we're blue in the face, but nothing, it seems, can be done because it's like a machine. Nobody really knows how to change its engineering and they don't have the political will to do it and they haven't been persuaded, able to persuade the electorate, the people, that this is what needs doing. Um, the last time I saw anybody really seriously try to persuade in that way was Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. And I have a lot of respect for that guy. Um, but he was absolutely bagged by all the media and not just the tabloids. The BBC were shamelessly anti-Corbyn for no reason. The Guardian UK ran a campaign against him for no good reason. And essentially, he was trying to save the country from austerity. 
And thanks to the noble institutions of places like the BBC and The Guardian, and all the Murdoch tabloids, of course, they've now got a government that has deepened poverty. They have absolutely terrible, terrible child poverty in the UK. There are kids going to school without lunches and kids stealing each other's lunches. And that was happening during that election campaign a few years ago. They have a collapsed National Health Service. They have uh, power bills like ours that are just astronomically going up and old people, none of whom can afford to heat their houses. They're in dire straits because they're stuck in a machine and they don't have the intelligence or the will to change it. They had a chance and they blew it and they're stuck now. I don't know how far downhill they'll go, but they're going very far down very fast. So it is a crisis. It needs to be understood. I did quite a lot of history for that book and I saw it as a triangle. We have the British model, the American model and the Australian model and they're all linked. They have the same kind of government parliamentary system they have the same official language in English. They share a lot of history and they share a lot of political habits and trends. So I was looking at, at that kind of triangle and I was very interested in a lot of aspects of Australian economic history because this model didn't come in till the 70s. That's when neoliberalism really started to influence Australian thinkers and it got into government policy hard and fast in the Howard era because Howard had several ministers who were actually formally involved in the promotion of neoliberal ideology through the think tanks. Interesting perspectives and I think a perfect segue into you connecting then with Nina. Can you tell me what motivated you to connect with Nina, how you connected, why you connected, and what you've done with Nina? Well, while I was working on the book, I talked to Scotty, who's in Canberra, and he was great, and I went to quite a few meetings of the Commons group here that he chairs, and then I went to the Nina conference in Perth and was very interested in all the papers. So I, I took a lot from that conference as background and followed up on some of the speakers and read work I hadn't read before. And then when it came out, I contacted Nina and um, had a talk to Michelle Maloney. I went to see her in Queensland. And at the time, because the book was out and I was kind of moving sideways like a crab, I thought, Look, the thing I want to get out of this now, looking to the future, is the basic income direction. That is the way to restore an economy for the common good. I think it's the only way. And so I went and saw Michelle. I said, yeah, here she is, you know, working for a shoestring and less, running this amazing organisation. I said, how would your life be different with a basic income? And she just said, oh, I wish. Anyway, um, we continued that. And um, then we started a hub on Nina. Um, so it, it's kind of gone from there. Great. And leaning into universal basic income, I'd love to know a bit about it. Can you tell me 
what universal basic income is and maybe just with your lens of history how it kind of or like originated and and what trials have come forward and, and the direction it's going in yeah and I don't want it all to come out like a lecture because it is huge and it's all connected so please interrupt me with questions or I'll try to stop and and if you just feed in what questions come up for you because Q&A is the best way to deal with this like everything I say will give you a thought or a question and so let's try and do it as dialogue (laughs) where does the idea come from it goes back a very long way if you go to any culture prior to the industrial revolution or a culture that's still got a very traditional economy, you know, indigenous-based economy that hasn't really been through industrial revolution in the way that, say, Europe and America and Australia did. Most of those traditional economies are built around an assumption that the people need subsistence. Now, they don't always get it. There's famine, as overpopulation. Wars may ravage the country so that, you know, it doesn't recover for generations. But neoliberalism has deftly swept that idea under the carpet. Nobody has a right to anything unless they earn it. And the only way they can earn it is to work for somebody who can afford to pay them. Now, a whole succession of things comes of that, which I'd like to talk about separately, because that's the employment side of my argument, which is a particular thing I'm wanting to push that I think is being missed in the basic income debate. So I'll just put that to one side and return to the question of what basic income is. In Australia, we know about land rights. So back to Ngunnawal land. This land, before it was built on and the house I'm sitting in was bought and sold and bought and sold, um, was not owned by anybody as an individual. There were no names attached to it in ownership. Um, It was a resource. So there might have been forestry. There are creeks and rivers nearby. And people lived off the land, which they had various ways of managing and cultivating. And you can read Bruce Pascoe's book about that. It's possibly overstated the case, but I don't care. It needed stated. And it's been understated or ignored for centuries. So good on him. And you learn a lot from Bruce Pascoe. And some of it is incontrovertible. Like the use of certain kinds of grain and seed to mill and make bread. Now, nobody bought and sold that. The land gave it to them. And that was how they saw it. Now, I'm not Indigenous, which is pretty obvious. My ancestry is British. But I'm very conscious now that I come from a tradition that also has a land rights movement. 
And that was a very important movement at various times in British history. The one that I focused on in my book was in the 17th century. Um, most people know that King Charles I got his head chopped off. <laughs> they don't necessarily know why and how that happened. It was the consequence of an extraordinary people's revolution. And they used this word Commonwealth, Commonwealth, which does not mean what we think it means with the British Commonwealth or the British Empire. It means the opposite. It wasn't a power system run from the top down. It was common wealth, wealth held in common because, and this is a key line, every creature born of the earth has a right to subsistence from it. That's land rights. Now, if you think about that, every creature born of the earth has a right to subsistence from it. That's good, but if you take that principle as part of your whole life and that of your grandchildren and grandparents going through time, you know that with that right goes a responsibility. You have to take care of the land if you want it to take care of you. So the land rights movement in Britain, just like the land rights movement here, was about caring for the land, realising that the earth owns us every bit as much as we may think we own the earth temporarily and in bits, which is a delusion. So this revolutionary movement was about taking back common land. And this small group called the Diggers, who are at the centre of one movement, went under the leadership of a local businessman, local merchant actually, called Gerard Winstanley. Extraordinary character. I won't say a lot about him here because this isn't a history lecture. But he declared that he and his people were going to live together, to work together upon St. George's Hill. St. George's Hill was some nearby land, which tr was traditionally commons land. Commons land was supposed to be not owned by anybody. It was supposed to be for the use of anybody who wanted to make a living from it. So you could graze your cattle on it. You could run your hens on it. You could grow a few vegetables. If you wanted, you could build a hut and you could gather the timber from nearby forest to build your hut. If it got cold, you could get fuel, turf and droppings from forest litter and you could make yourself a fire. In the streams, you could fish. So you had a fair chance. You might have had rough times, but you had a fair chance of making a living because you had commons rights. Your chance was greatly improved, <laughs> astronomically improved, if you had a good community and you worked with them because what 20 people can do on a patch of land is so much more than what one or two people can do. What 250 people can do is better again. So this was a community system. So to live together, to work together upon St. George's Hill, there's three things there, community, work, and resources. That is my model for basic income. 
And that is where I'm sorry to kind of platform here, but I'm going to do it. 98% of discussion of basic income goes wrong. It's got to have three things. It's got to have community, work, and resources. That's what it always was. If it's just money, it's never going to fly, it's never going to come in, and it's never going to work. So those three principles have to be at the core of it. I'll stop because that's quite a lecture. Um, Shoot me another question. Well, I want to piggyback off that. So community resources and work, you mentioned earlier, you flagged earlier that work was a component that's misunderstood. How has it been misunderstood? I I assume that if 98% of the conversation is maybe focused on money, that work gets pushed to the wayside or, or misinterpreted. So what's, what's the issue there with work and how can work be feasible and be part of it and be in, be integrated uh, integrated into UBI. Let's take that from the other end. Typically, basic income trials have been run by governments and they've been run on the assumption that it's a form of welfare. Okay, that's two things wrong. One, they shouldn't be run by governments. Two, they are not a form of welfare. Let me repeat that. They are not a form of welfare because every single Labour politician thinks they are. Um, Which is why somebody like Chris Bowen, who's a very smart man, very smart indeed, is stupid enough to call it payments for billionaires. Um, A very smart economist, left-wing economist, Stephen Kukoulos, calls them a wacko policy notion, bottom lines are lack of fairness, and disincentive for workforce participation. That's what happens when you treat basic income as a welfare system, as a handout system. Um, So going back to community resources, responsibility, I like to call it the three R's, rights, resources, responsibilities. You owe something back. The U in UBI can mean universal or it can mean unconditional. And both those terms you've got to be very careful of. There's a wrong way to take both of them. Now, the wrong way to take unconditional is you get it for nothing and you owe nothing. If you think land rights... No one who takes land rights seriously would say you get it for nothing and you owe nothing. Nor is that true of basic income. It's a form of land rights for an economy that works not from land but from money. It's a monetary equivalent of land rights. So it's basic subsistence as a right with a responsibility. Um, So it's not unconditional because it carries responsibility. So the question is what those responsibilities are. Let me take the second U, universal. Uh, Universal in the sense that it is as fundamental as land rights. Every creature born of the earth has a right to subsistence from it. That's a universal principle. And as we know, in many cultures, there are famines and wars and all manner of things that 
prevent the resources from coming through to the people. So this would be an attempt to hold to that principle and, and feed them back in. Uh, other countries coming to help, um, aid systems to, you know, help rebuild the people's economy. But curiously, Universal also has a wrong way to be thought because keep pegging it to land rights and you'll realise that the local is critical. It means something that is specific to place in the way that land rights is. And it's specific to place because it involves community. That means there's special challenges for big cities. We could go there later on. But if you think of it from the ground up, it helps. So start by thinking of a small community. I'm going to forget names now. Um, Malakuta is a great example. Uh, small town, geographically a little bit separated from the towns around it. It had a disastrous time in the bushfires a few years ago, and they have got the most impressive community program of rebuilding because the government resources never came through. That's your model for basic income. If you give everyone in that town a basic income, Let's say for argument's sake, $400 a week. I like to use that term because it's not quite enough, but it's not hopelessly too little. The fact that it's not quite enough gives incentive to value add, which is what communities do. So a welfare person might say, oh, don't be ridiculous. You can't live on $400 a week. You know, if everybody was trying to do that, nobody would be able to pay the rent or their food or anything. Well, we're not talking that kind of economy. We're talking about an idea that is as radical as any idea in economics since the Industrial Revolution. We're talking about an idea that compensates for the damage of the Industrial Revolution. It's about rebuilding an economy in which the monetary element is being pushed back by the community and reciprocity element. So it's local because that's how you contribute to each other. And it's unconditional because governments aren't to impose any conditions. You don't have to apply for it and nobody can take it away. But um, it has the condition of community service and service to the land. And how that's interpreted then becomes the critical thing. That's where the big story starts opening up and the questions need to come in floods and need to be answered really. But those two terms, universal and unconditional, need to be taken up with some intelligence. They're not just ringding notions. The work side of it is as simple and as fundamental as work on the land. Um, this is actually an area of the topic that I love. I'm fascinated by work. I mean, I come from a family that probably has there's a lot of mental illness about, but more than its share of mental health problems. And two people in my family have suffered from quite severe psychotic elements, my mother and a brother. 
and it <clears throat> prevented them from getting what we call employment. But they're both very employable people. My mother was always volunteering. She worked for years at the Buddhist Library in London, which she was really good at, very committed to. And my older brother, who's a very scholarly person, uh, had to leave university when he was in his early 20s because he got that cruel thing that they keep changing the names, but they called it then schizophrenia. He had a schizophrenic breakdown and was unable to continue. And he has been regarded as unemployable throughout his life. He's a natural teacher. He has a wonderful feel for languages, has often taught informal groups languages. Like even when he was a student, he taught his fellow students Greek and Latin because they could never get it and they had to pass it to go to the next year. He has an amazing scholarly memory. Like if I have a lecture to give and I'm visiting England, I can pitch some difficult question to him and answer it all from his memory. Like one time I was over there and I said, do you know anything about the history of optics? He says, uh, oh yeah, two hours later, I've got this extempore lecture on medieval Arabic optics with all the names of the researchers. Then he tells me what articles have written on, been written on them, what journals they're in, and which floor of the Bodleian Library I'll find them on. That guy is called unemployable. He's a scholar, but he's a very sweet person. He'd be very happy to sit in the library and talk to people who are a bit lonely, find them something to read, go through the catalogues and look at what's being taken out and what isn't. We have an economy that throws people away, heaps of people, which is why we have this thing we love to call welfare. It's one of my kind of preoccupations to connect with people who've fallen out of the economy and understand what work they naturally would do. Like there's a woman that I got to know on Twitter actually about five years ago. She lives in New York State. She is quite disabled. She has a condition that I'm not sure what it is, but it affects her circulation and her temperature. She uses a wheelchair. She's quite young, still in her 30s. And she has quite severe autism. She doesn't respond to any environment that has a lot of sound or heat. So her surrounding conditions have to be very controlled. She couldn't just take a job. She'd be going in there saying, oh, yes, but there's bells going off or traffic outside. And they'd say, well, don't, what a fussy person. We can't employ you, can we? So she's homeless. She lives in what's known as a residential vehicle, which is really, really tough. She lives on next to nothing. And she has a major stressful crisis every year over the registration of the vehicle and the, the repairs that are required. That is so cruel. And that is very typical. Now, some years ago, she was working as a carer for a very old person and she was employed by that person's daughter and the daughter had cancer. She took care of both those women for years and she loved them. 
she'll do any carer job in which the conditions are such as she can manage. She, because she's in a wheelchair, she has to have access. And because of this temperature sound thing, she needs a controlled environment. Nobody's negotiating that. Yet throughout the country, people are absolutely desperate for carers. She's really good with animals, which is the case of a lot of people regarded as unemployable. Yet all over the place, there are people who need their animals cared for, temporarily, permanently. Often what happens is that these jobs are jobs nobody wants to pay for because the way we have constructed this weird fantasy of the thing we call an economy is these jobs are regarded as a cost. So they have to be always stripped back, pushed down, reduced in number and level and all the rest of it. And yet they're probably the most essential jobs we have. What gets a tick in the neoliberal economy is not work, but something called employment, which is work that somebody else is in a position to pay you for doing. That's really the principle I want to get a focus on. Um, I'm not a celebrity. People don't listen to what I say. I don't get retweeted. So if you do, please do it for me because you might get some traction here. Who owns the work? We don't ask that question. They've just had a huge employment summit up here in my city on Parliament Hill. Tell me one single person from any sector attending that conference, an independent, a union person, an employer, somebody from the business council, an MP. Name me one person who asked that question, who owns the work? Nobody is asking it. It is the question. Because if the only thing we regard as work is what somebody can pay you to do, it means we've got large sectors of the working public involved in forms of employment that not only don't really contribute to the economy of the common good, but are actively damaging to it. So the Victorian economy, I read somewhere, I think it's 25% is owned by Crown Casino, 25% of the employment. Now, how much of that work is not doing social damage? which goes on to create social cost, which goes on to create economic cost. How many jobs are in retail clothing? Zara, H&M, all those franchise clothing companies, which we know now own vast warehouses of clothing that's never sold, cause huge trash mountains of clothing, in developing economies that is never used, that's a cost. It's a cost to the environment, it's a cost to societies. Um, cotton, which is one of the most common elements of mass-produced clothing, devastates vast areas of the land and uses huge amounts of water. So lots of employment there. Somebody can always pay for it because they're making a profit, but that work is not work for the common good at all. And we have an economy that is geared to actively damage the common good and to promote work that is bad for us. It's bad for us. It's bad for the planet. It's unsustainable. 
So we need to rejig so that the people own their work and can invest their work in what is actually good for them and good for the sustainability of their resources. That, to me, is the number one argument for basic income. It buys the people's time back for the people to invest in the work that's good for them. So it's not about not working. It's about who owns the work. 100%. It is, it's just mind-blowing when you think about our labour market and ownership of work and also value in work. Like why is it that a, a nurse who um, literally wipes people's asses, it's extraordinarily hard, really long hours, shift work, night shifts, um, probably at the cost of their own health, which is ironic, um, meanwhile, somebody playing with some numbers behind a screen and investing here, there and everywhere in the paperless economy earns more than tenfold what that nurse who's who's giving back to our community earns. So I think ownership of work and how we value work and why, for example, you mentioned the care industry is so undervalued compared to industry and technology and engineering and other other forms of work. So they are really important questions and I wish, I hope that it somehow gets filtered into the mainstream, um, which seems like one of the biggest challenges. I think in a way this is an optimistic thing because unfortunately humans are not very good at changing the way they operate. Change will be forced on us. And every time I see those images of the trash mountains and the trash islands, I'm sure you've seen them. I mean, there's a trash island the size of a small continent floating around. And is it the Pacific Ocean, one of the major oceans? And that makes me think the generation that would be of my grandchildren are going to spend their working lives dealing with their grandparents' trash. That's going to be their work. Whether they like it or not, whether the human race likes it or not, the work of the future will be the work of recycling, uh, which is not a particularly big word in our economy. It's getting bigger. It's going to become one of the biggest words in the language, and it's going to become the form of employment. Um, or the form of work, I prefer to talk about work rather than employment because employment implies the ownership of work. If you think about one of those trash continents or the trash mountains that are around in parts of the world where they deal with all our refuse clothing, so many different kinds of human ability and expertise are needed to deal with that. It's going to need, at the level of raw matter, you can't just recycle old clothing. It should never have been clothing in the first place. It's made out of rubbish. I make clothing. I know what you need to make good clothing. And what they make it out of should never be clothing. It's just trash. It always was trash. So it's raw matter. And in bulk, what you need to deal with raw matter is chemical engineering. You need it analysed for its components then it has to be reprocessed into usable form. And because it's bulk, 
we have to think about where we're using bulk matter. So that's foundations of buildings, major public structures like bridges, roads. Um, that raw matter is going to have to be reconstituted in such a way that we can use it for all our biggest bulk forms of construction. Going to have to reclaim some of the land that has been used as landfill or on which these trash mountains exist. So I've seen cattle grazing on some of those trash mountains. Are they somehow, if they were sorted, reconstitutable? Sorry, that's not a word. <laughs> but you're going to have to have it because you can't think of another one. Reconstitutable. Look, <laughs> well, it works. Makes Into land that will yield subsistence for animals or humans. Um, a lot of it is sorting, which is a sophisticated human business. It always has been. So you've got to sort out what of those, what in those mountains is reusable for what. Um, some of it at the level of raw matter, some of it recycling in the sense we might think of now, like, you know, plastic bottles or paper recycling. Some forms of cloth can be recycled, but not nearly the way that the industry likes to pretend. Water is going to have to be recycled. I mean, thanks to Jeremy Corbyn's loss of the election, thanks to the BBC and The Guardian, I can't credit them often enough, um, Britain now has filthy sewage water in all its rivers and all its coastlines. That's got to be dealt with. So there are skills involved in that at all levels, from high-end scientific work to figure out you know, the chemical sides of it, down to just people of goodwill working together, picking up rubbish, managing their own waste. So basic income underwrites a new economy. And we need to think of it not as welfare for individuals, but in aggregate form. What it will do across the board at the level of a town like Malakuta, a small city like Yass in New South Wales, or a big city like Shanghai. And it means that the balance of power between governments and people has to shift. That's rocket science, as any politician will tell you. It means moving away from the monetary economy to an economy where people are paying each other back through different kinds of reciprocity. Everything from community markets to exchange of services. You alluded to the Labour government's interest in universal basic income earlier with some of the comments um, that have been made. I'm wondering about appetite from the government, even for pilot pilot projects in Australia, do you see it as something that actually could have some teeth here? Do you see it as something that, do you see it in our future in Australia and do you see the government ever being open to 
giving it a go? I think the thing is to make the government into not the mover of this, but something that is moved. Um, and this is really something I'd love to get going through Nina. Uh, I think we need a trial that is community initiated. The ideal circumstances for it would be a place like Lismore that's been hit by a natural disaster or the small town of Grantham near where I used to live in southeast Queensland. They were hit by the floods and they've been hit again, where money has simply got to be put in there and the government has made a complete pig's ear of, you know, assistance. They just haven't done it, basically, and people are left destitute. So a community that's got to be supported and governments will at least accept the principle, even if they don't know how to respond. And if you feed basic income into a situation like that and ask the community to make their own plan and because they're stressed, then maybe that's where Nina could help. We could collaborate with them on making a plan to suit them and their circumstances. So this would lay out the conditions in which people participated in the basic income. So it's not unconditional from the community point of view. It's unconditional from the government point of view. Government doesn't get to set conditions on people, but the community does. And it should be specific to the needs of that community. So if there has been a disaster, there's going to be a lot of cleanup stuff. There's going to be a lot of rebuilding. Even mending fences has been a massive thing following the fires. So all those things need to be considered, how this work will be shared because it will be paid for. Um, $400 a week, maybe not a great deal if you're a single parent with kids. How are you supposed to co cope on that? But your mother's got it. Your sister's got it. Your kids will get it when they're 18. Your neighbours have got it people who own the local businesses have got it. This creates a different circumstance. More people will be sharing what you're dealing with. So things that might have been costs like electricity, you know, Kevin's got a great pan for community battery. So let's not pay for electricity out of that 400. Let's take that on as a community plan and a community cost. Um, Childcare, let's do that as a community plan, not as something costed in the monetary economy. Um, house repairs, likewise. So a lot of things that might have been costs to that single parent would not be costs anymore. And because they're already, as a parent, say, of two small children, doing a lot of unpaid work, they would be one of the first people to be the beneficiaries of other people's work. Um, people in that community already have a lot of money. Um, we're coming to the end of our time today, but I have in other presentations spent a lot of time on that because if you take that triangle, rights, responsibilities, resources, somebody who's got $200,000 a year, they have a choice. They can opt out, which is fine. Anybody can opt out. But if they opt in, they opt into the triangle. So they're doing their share. They don't need the money. They could contribute it to a central pool. They could contribute their resources. Say they own buildings, they might make a building available, um, you know, gratis to 
public activities. Um, if they've got skills, let's say they're a legal expert, they might give their time pro bono to the community. So that's the way. It's not payments for billionaires, Chris Bowen. Please do a bit of thinking. We pay you for it. The billionaires or the people who are well off are encouraged to think differently and to act differently. Um, and that's generally good for our culture. It's part of the ideological shift because they're part of a community, which then gives back to them. You know, they're away at a conference. They've got a sick dog. Somebody will come and care for it. And it feeds back into, um, as well, people such as your mum and, and, and your brother who have incredible skills and motivations and interests and a beautiful brains and motivation to be a part of a community and help support a community to actually be integrated into our world so that we can all learn from and benefit from their beautiful minds and them not being you know, ousted on the edges mm. because they don't fit into our standard um, of what it is to be somebody who's employable. Yeah, so there's there's so many flow-on effects, I think, for community. Um, so bringing that back to Nina, what would you like to see Nina do now and into the future in this space of UBI and in other areas? Because Nina has, you know, it's this wonderful network of all these, all these minds coming together, thinking of alternate systems. How can we... How can we actually run a, a world of, of pe rich in people um, that doesn't come at the cost of exploiting, exploiting our precious biodiversity, our precious ecosystem, our precious, you know, climate? Where would you like to see Nina going into the future and, and where would UBI fit into that? Well, Nina is us, I guess. So it's everything from what we're doing now, which is connecting with each other and our different places and focuses. I've had a lot of conversations with Nina people about this. I would say at least a dozen detailed conversations. And it seems to be, I think we're all thinking along these lines in our different ways with our different emphases. I really would like to see a trial. I'm certainly aware of my own limitations. <laughs> I probably speak too stridently, but I'm so frustrated about all this. I'm so frustrated by human stupidity. And we don't have to be so stupid. You know, Nina is a great resource for genuine intelligence, I think. I think, you know, the onus is on the likes of you and me. I'm still working to try and get contact with people who would like to set up a trial. I'd love to have conversations. I'd love them to be completely informal on my part. I don't represent any organisation. But I'd be very happy to just engage in dialogue, respond to questions, participate in research, write documents. I think if we could get a small or medium-sized community to present an application to government for a basic income trial on the basis of need and disaster recovery would be that, we could get it happening. But it needs to be a whole of community. Like I keep thinking Malakuta or Grantham, but everybody in that area. And the only criterion 
is that they have lived there since before the disaster. They've been a homeowner or, you know, but they've clearly lived there. They're on the electoral register. And then if there are borderline cases, the community themselves arbitrates on whether they're in or out. Good luck. I really hope <laughs> the people and the resources and the motivation all come together to bring out a trial. It would be incredible to see that. I mean, in the meantime, if anybody listening to this wants to be part of this, knows people, please contact me. Um, I'm very happy to put people in touch with each other, to have meetings and discussions with people, see if we can push this forward. We need to get beyond the stage where we're talking and writing about it to something happening, and it, it can happen. Just to wrap up today, Jane, I've got five final fast questions for you that I ask everybody who hops on the podcast. Just quick thoughts that come to you um, to answer these. They're not necessarily easy ones, but I'm curious to hear your responses. So the first one is, who is one person that's been an immense source of personal and professional inspiration to you and why? So many people. (laughs) I'm a bit of a Zen practitioner on the side. There's a wonderful guy called William Siegel. There's some documentaries made about him. Uh, Just how to live in a peaceable way, how to be organically connected to places and lives. And so many people in literature and in politics. I'm more political than I used to be. Politicians are never perfect, but people who do a courageous job at a difficult time, which is, I think, what Corbyn did during those years leading up to the last British election and what Zelensky is doing now. And they cop it. People love to hate those people. I didn't admire Biden when he was running, but I do now. I think he's really stepped up. I don't particularly go for heroes, but I do respect people who come to the fore at particular times. You could recommend one resource, so anything, you know, a book, article, documentary, whatever, uh, to listeners that you think is valuable and somewhat kind of reflects the principles of what Nina is all about, what resource would you recommend? God, there are so many books. I mean, this is awful promotion, but I wrote that because that's what I wanted to provide. It would be another way of answering your question because, you know, the things in the bibliography are all from that sort of area there. References to lots of people who've really thought about this and contributed key ideas that we're still working with. That was my attempt to bring it all together. So I guess why not say so? <laughs> Great. Absolutely. I'll be, I'll be sure to check out your book, Politics of the Common Good. I feel like it's going to be rich in all sorts of things that we could all learn a lot from, I think. It's um, the sort of thing you can read in bits. You don't have to go through the whole lot. Yeah, great. I love that. Yeah. How do you navigate the daily dilemma? Our economy is founded on infinite growth and that comes at all sorts of clearly harmful implications. As such, you've dedicated so much of your life's work to really challenging that. And on the other hand, you live in our system and and you need to eat and, (laughs) and purchase things. So how do you kind of reconcile those two those two truths 
Well, we're none of us completely in control. I think especially in this kind of economy and so many people, the primary stress is economic. I mean, right now, you know, people quite terrifyingly faced with a loss of properties into which they've invested everything, all their working hours, all their cares, the things they've deprived themselves of to save. And this is all at risk. And they seem to be completely without any control over the situation. I think we're all a bit in that. And looking at my own situation, I suppose now not being a young person, (laughs) I can see it as a shape. I mean, I came out of a family that had a lot of problems because of this mental health. So from the age of about 17, I was very aware that I had to be self-sufficient. But at the time, I got the luxury of a free university education. That was an enormous boost. Then I worked really too hard. I worked like a demon for some decades in the academic world, trying to do what they wanted, which to a large extent I managed to do. But I think pushing a great deal of the stress onto my family, far too much. Uh, It didn't even have to be that sort of stress. It was manufactured by all these fake objectives that these big institutions have. And then coming out of it as quickly as possible, but in such a way that I was able to support myself through various things I had set up. And I suppose I had a game plan that was brewing for about 10 years before I came out. It was a priority and I managed to do it. But now that I have some resources and some time, I'll never be rich and don't want to be. I think I'm just instinctively aware, whatever you do, if you're doing something for yourself, give something away, give something back at every point in everything you do. That's a pretty simple principle. And people who are in the stress phase, you can't do that. You've got to have people help you. So that's where the community thing comes in. Yeah. Yeah. We had more time. I'd love to know what that big, big picture ten-year goal was. <laughs> and there was some luck. It involved selling three thrillers, and that wasn't easy. <laughs> and there was some luck. <laughs> wow, interesting. Three books. That does not sound easy at all. I think I'd have it was a attack at one chapter. Yeah, good, good. If you could give one piece of advice to Australian leading politicians, which I love asking you about because it sounds like you're more engaged with politics um, as time goes on. If you could give one piece of advice to Australia's leading politicians, what would it be? Uh, Number one, ask the question, who owns the work? Number two, answer it in an intelligent way. If all of a sudden you miraculously had infinite time and money and resources to spend just on Nina right now and everybody within Nina. How would you spend it? What would you do? Work to set up a basic income trial. And how can people connect with you? If they want to reach out, how can they find you? I'll give you my um, email address and my Twitter handle. Wonderful. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Jane. I feel like I've learned a lot from you and you've given my brain a lot of things to chew on. And I dare say as the day goes on, I'm going to 
wish that I asked you things that I didn't at the time. So <laughs> I think that's we a sign. We can continue the dialogue. <laughs> exactly, we can. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to really thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Anna, and thank you for doing this valuable work. We do start by talking and sometimes it goes places. 100%. We start by talking and listening. Every social revolution has always started with a conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a beautiful day. Thank you. You've been listening to Jane Goodall sharing her thinking and research about the universal basic income. Jane is really keen to keep this conversation going. So if you're interested, please contact her through Nina. Thanks for listening.